it's strange giving an Easter message this way. I've given many Easter messages over the years. But never in a situation like this, where um, literally outside these windows, these walls where I'm sitting and where you're sitting, there's a pandemic happening. This airborne disease that is um, killing and hurting and harming people all over the world. What a time. And I, 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 as I kept thinking about this morning, like this is like if there was ever a morning for us to celebrate and high five and to want to really like have a lot of joy, it's this morning. And as I kept thinking about the morning, I, I thought, I, I don't know how much joy I, I can have or even feel like it's appropriate to have when there are, are literally people right now in hospitals dying alone. Like, their family members can't get to them. Um, sometimes family members in other countries aren't notified until a day or two after their loved one has passed. That there are people, even in our congregation, here in this city, but around the world, who have lost like their jobs, their careers, their livelihood. Like some of you maybe have may have gotten information over the weekend or just before the weekend, or expect to get this next week, that, that everything's gonna change for you financially. That you're gonna have to figure out how to make ends meet in this age of a pandemic. It's hard to have joy around that. Some of us here are being faced with the, the, the limitations that we have in relationships. Relationships are being frayed. Marriages are maybe being exposed that, like, I don't, like, you're having a hard time. You're even asking questions like, can, how much longer can I do this? All these things is what's happening here in this moment. Yes, it's Easter. Yes, hallelujah, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And they're suffering. Something very visceral. Something that a lot of us as Americans are insulated from because of our lives, our privilege, our circumstances, whatever it may be. And so that's what I was wrestling with as I was coming into like this message of how much hope is there. And then I kept thinking that, that though there probably isn't a more appropriate time for Easter, that Easter couldn't have come soon enough. Because of all the things that we wrestle with and bicker and, and fight over as Christians, well, I believe this, or I look at it this way, you know, when it comes to X, Y, and Z issues, doctrines, theologies, the thing that we all can be bound together on and find unity in is that we believe and serve a Lord who conquered sin and death, who, who resurrected, as wild of a thought as that is, as much as it is to wrap our minds around that. That's the linchpin to our belief system. And so there's something about even getting to have the unity this morning. And as I was thinking about this passage, I've realized like it gives us a unique look at this resurrection account. You know, there's three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we have something like John that was written anywhere from 50 to 80 years later. I don't really know exactly, but some would say at the end of the, the first century there. And, you know, the further away you get from a moment, the, the more perspective 
you may have, that there's so many commonalities in the first three Gospels, but there's words and details and accounts that can um, take us different places here. There's ways that this writer of the Gospel of John is making connections that I think can open our eyes, open our hearts, and, um, and encourage us today. And I want to be clear that this account doesn't give us answers to, now what do I do in my marriage? Okay, now what do I do about a job? Okay, now what do I do about this imminent uh, disease that I could get? No, the, the, the Bible can't give you that. It can't give you answers to your problems. It's not a, a book of answers, but it is a book of encouragement because it gives us patterns to how God moves and is involved throughout the moments of humanity, throughout our lives. And so I'm not interested in giving any kind of answers. I mean, like, listen, I'm in a chair, I'm in a video, I got flowers, I've already asked for money, I might as well be on TBN, right? And then offer you, like, and if you give, you know, a $50 gift, you'll get this prayer cloth from me or whatever else. No, this, that's not how it works. That's not it. That, that this book that we interact with and read, though, does give us hope because it lets us see patterns. And listen, patterns are incredibly important to see in our own lives. Like when you look back over your life in patterns, you might see, hey, I keep eating really bad things at 10.30 at night. Like for some reason I want a sleeve of Oreos. Oh, there's a pattern. Let me look at that. It could be a pattern of, of uh, maybe during this time of being stayed up in your home, things like drinking or whatever else is more accessible. It's a pattern. Maybe um, it's harder to work out while you're at home, or easy to work out. There's a pattern. The more you look at things, the more patterns you see. And when you see a pattern, it allows you then to have agency and choice in the moment of what you want to do with that. So that's what I want to do here. I want us to look at what those things, these patterns could be. Now, here's what's interesting to me. The first pattern we see, this whole story revolves around a tomb. I mean, this is a story about how people deal with tombs, the tombs of their life. We have, we have Mary... We have Peter and we have this other disciple, the Beloved. Um, that they are, they are around this tomb. Nine times in 11 verses, uh, the word tomb is used. That's more than any other resurrection account. Like usually it's only one or two times. Nine times this tomb is the central part and being talked about in this passage in 11 verses. So that tells us something. We need to pay attention to this tomb. We need to pay attention to how these people interact with this moment of death in their lives. Because these people have stepped into something that, and they're, they're in a reality where their whole lives are upended. Like utter chaos is the narrative here. That they've, they've lost their Messiah just two, three days earlier, and here they are in still the shock and trauma of it all, and they're trying to figure out what we do with this. And so they're, they're hanging around the tomb. Mary would have been coming to the tomb early that Sunday morning um, to maybe uh, freshen it up because it's going to smell and reek of death, more than likely what she was doing. Um, and so she, it says here in verse 1 that she shows up at the tomb, and it's still dark, and she sees that the, the stone is rolled away. The, the tombs would have been low, uh, would have been carved out into like side of a, of a rock here, and it would have been low to the ground. It would have been a small hole. Think like almost 
hobbits, right? Like small hole, but inside it's carved out with enough space to lay a body. And then you'd roll a big rock over that. That would be the tomb. That would be how they buried people uh, in the ancient Near East at this time. And so she shows up this tomb, the stone is rolled away, and she's already living in chaos. And now, and she's already, her life is already upended, much like ours right now, the chaos and how upended it is. And now she's even more freaking out. So it says that she runs back to tell the disciples. And two disciples react immediately. We have the beloved, we don't really know who that is, we assume maybe it's John, it could be someone else, and Peter. And they run back, it says the beloved disciples, disciple runs back faster than Peter. And so Peter then gets there after him. And it says that in verse 5, and stooping to look in, this is from the ESV, because I think it's really important what it's saying here in the ESV. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then it says, then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb. And again, it uses the same phrase. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Again, if we observe this passage, we already observe that it talks about the word tomb nine times, which means this is a story about people who are living in the midst of death and chaos, and this tomb represents that. And then it says that, that the clothes are lying there. Twice it says the clothes are lying there. And then in the ESV it says that the face cloth that they would put on Jesus is folded up in a corner. None of the other gospel accounts talk about this. It's so interesting. It's one of those things with perspective looking back over it. Maybe that John, and if he's, if he's writing this, picks up on something. Um, think about this. And, and, and if you read the NIV, it doesn't catch this because it's a nuance within the Greek that could go one way or the other. But the, the translators of the ESV and then other versions do point this out, that it's either folded up or rolled up into a corner. It's an interesting comment for the gospel writer to make. Because think about it, in this big, traumatic, chaotic, world-upending moment for Mary and the disciples, in this big, traumatic, upending moment, this utter chaos, there's order. Ever so slight order. I want you to think about this. Jesus, we just said the Apostles' Creed, Jesus dies, descends into Hades, into hell, and resurrects. And the first thing he does is make up his bed. Like, think about this. Like, if you went down to hell and, like, you conquered the devil and demons and kind of kick butt and take names, all that kind of stuff, you did all that. And, like, you know, you hold the keys of life and death. It's the first thing you're going to do when you wake up from your, your only slumber now is to make up your bed. Like, in my mind, it'd be like, hey, it's time to go, like, let's go use some of this power. Let's go do some things. And the first thing Jesus does in the midst of this chaotic moment is make up his bed. I love that. I love that in this huge, utter, chaotic moment, he brings a small amount of order. He begins where he is and folds up his clothes, and they're put into a corner. And there's actually precedent for this if you're an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person. Because if you go all the way back to the very first chapter in the first three verses of the Bible, in the beginning, 
what it talks about is that the world was uh, void and formless. That's what it talks about there. That's how we translate it in English. That as God appeared on the scene, the world was an utter chaos. The word actually in the Hebrew is tovu vavohu. Tovu vavohu. Devoid, formless, chaotic. And when God shows up on the scene, He speaks, and then the rest of the chapter is about Him bringing order, creation, to a seemingly devoid, formless, chaotic world. If you were an ancient Eastern person, you believed that the very first act that happens, the very first sign that God is near in the midst of traumatic, chaotic moments is order. That's the way you pick up on God. I love that because um, it's a promise that no matter how difficult times are, God brings order. It's hard to wait on that order. It's hard to wait on those moments that God is going to show up because we keep going, it's so much, it's so chaotic. But there is a wait. There's a wait in the death. But that eventually, in that chaos, in that formless, devoid place, even if it's as simple as a bed being made, God brings order. And I wonder even for us at home, what does it mean for us to take and apply that on a very practical level? You can't control maybe if you've lost your job or not. You can't control who's dying or who lives. You can't control those things, neither can I. Heck, you might even like, have no control over how your marriage is going. Relationships that you've lost. You can't control your loneliness. Those things are just bigger than you. And yet there are small things we can do to bring order to our lives. It's very easy that when we see things burning around us, to be like, you know what, just throw in the towel, give up. But there is something, I guess what I'm saying is this, there's something very sacred, maybe even in making up our own beds in the morning. Like, hear me out, maybe there's something connected to resurrection by just when we wake up in the morning, there's just some slight amount of order. There's some slight amount of liturgy that starts our day that lets us know that we're anchored into something deeper and more real than even what's happening around us. That, that maybe us taking steps to be very um, thoughtful with our time throughout the day. I, I know for me, I have this thing that goes off my phone that lets me know how much screen time I have uh, that I've used. And sometimes it's really embarrassing. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do better next week. But I just wonder, like, what would it be like even for me to be like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have even, I can't control those things. I can have this, though. I can have more order here. I can get up. I can make my bed. Um, I can change out of sweats today, even though I'm walking 10 feet away from my bed to a chair where I'm going to do all my Zoom meetings for that day. But maybe I can just have more order to my day. And maybe when you and I interact with more order, and maybe it's the order of saying, you know what, as much as I want to check out with games, I'm going to check in with, a check-in and make a phone call or a book. Maybe if I just want to kind of like, you know what, I just kind of want to drink and get away from this day and I, 5 o'clock can't get here soon enough and all of a sudden you're not like going by 5 o'clock uh, in Central Standard Time Zone. You're going by 5 o'clock somewhere in London. <laughs> like You're like, okay, maybe I can bring some more order to my life. And in that moment, what I'm saying, 
their divine touch points. We're almost interacting with the resurrection and Easter, as simple and silly as that may sound. But we see here that Jesus brings order. And listen, that order is comforting. And there's a word in that for us. That by us practicing those small moments of order in our life, it's pointing us to maybe even greater order that God is going to bring in our world. The second thing we see here, so we have this first interaction of Peter and the Beloved, but then we have this interaction now of Mary with the tomb. And I want to read this in verse 11. But Mary, see the the disciples went back and they ran back after this moment. They didn't hang out near the tomb, but Mary hangs out near the tomb longer than the disciples. And look what happens. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I did not know where they have laid him. When Mary looks in, she finds two angels, and they start having a convo with her. And here's the conversation. The conversation centers around her tears. The angels don't run to answers. They don't tell her what a silly person she is and get over it and your tears. Just don't you see there's a bigger thing happening here, Mary? Like, let's get over it. No. Here's a woman who had been disregarded and overlooked and pushed down her whole life. And the first time she ever felt empowered and platformed and given a voice was this radical Messiah who was doing everything backwards in the Jewish culture, seemingly. He's, he's like letting women roll deep in his posse with him as he goes place to place. And Mary's one of them. She's a leader within this new community. And she knows everything's going to be lost now. And so she's weeping with that. She's weeping over someone she loved dearly and deeply. And these angels actually then look at her and say, Why are you weeping? Another way of saying it, hey, what's going on? I see your tears. But not only the angels, because it says she immediately turns around and there's Jesus. She doesn't know it's Jesus because she thinks it's a gardener. And the first thing the gardener then asks her is, what are your tears about? You know, sometimes the best response to the tragedy we're happening in our li- that we're having in our lives individually and corporately It's just when someone looks at us in our tears and doesn't try to fix us or manage us or shame us, but simply goes, what's going on? What are your tears about? What's your lament over? And then they stop. Like they don't try to give anything else after that. I I think being seen, the, the desire to be seen is the most divine impulse we all have inside of our lives. I just want to be seen, not fixed, not managed, not told it's all going to be okay because there's death all around me. I just want to be seen. Is that something you can relate to? Is that something you wish you had? You just want to be seen. I spent so much of my pastoral career waiting, had a meeting with people, waiting for them to get finished talking so that when they finished talking, I could give them some kind of great answer to how they deal with their problems. And then I realized I'm powerless. And that kind of approach is useless. Because people don't want answers as much as they want comfort. Just to be seen. 
we see that by Mary hanging out near the tomb, she is comforted in her tears. She is seen. She is seen by the angels. She is seen by the Lord himself. And if I were to take that and apply it even more deeply for us, I would say there's something divine. If there's something divine about bringing order, maybe making up our own beds in the morning, there's also something divine about just reaching out and seeing another person and asking them what their tears are about. Asking them what their pain is about. Asking them what their worry is about. And then not trying to fix it, but just let them express it. Both of these things, creating order in the midst of chaos and being seen in the midst of pain, are the first two actions we see after resurrection. Which tells me something in a pattern that this resurrected life is less about getting out to Beulah land one day when I pass from this earth and more about interacting with normal things, hard things here and now in very loving ways. That's what resurrection tells us. That's what it gives us. Man, I'm preaching. Somebody say amen. But there's something beautiful and divine about these simple acts we give. Creating order and chaos and seeing another person. And I think that those are the kind of moments people around us are looking for as well. Those are the kind of things people are begging for because you can't control whether or not they're going to lose a loved one or they get COVID-19 and you can't control whether or not um, they're going to lose their job. But you do have a say-so in bringing a small amount of comfort in their lives. Maybe encouraging them in their own order of how they can just like have uh, these simple things like that they wrap their heads around on a daily basis and that you help them with. Maybe it's simply just saying like, hey, I see you, I love you, and I'm sorry. What do you need? I'm here. Bringing order in the midst of chaos and seeing others in the midst of their despair, bringing comfort. The last thing I would say that happens because Mary hangs out around the tomb long enough is that she realizes it's Jesus. And um, she's able to run back and tell the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And what I love about this is that Jesus appears at a gardener, as a gardener. Which, let's just go back to Genesis 1 one more time. There's chaos, tobu babohu. There's order brought to this world. And then there's a gardener placed in the middle of it all. Adam. There's chaos here in this gospel. There's order brought to it all. And there's a gardener put in the midst of this place. To till up the weeds to make it beautiful again. And here's the last thing I'd say. Sometimes we don't let ourselves hang around the tombs in our life long enough to see Jesus. To let the gardener come in and bring encouragement. And what I would encourage you is this. What I encourage you with is this. Don't rush past these hard moments too quickly. Don't let yourself check out too much with uh, sex or food or drink or games or other things or these ambitions of who you're going to be and how you're going to become a new person and those things, okay, maybe fine. But sometimes those things can mute the other thing that's happening and that is we're experiencing something beyond ourselves that we have no power over. And maybe if we turn around and look, the gardener is nearby. That resurrection is at hand. And that we can't be met. And maybe if we experience those places long enough in our own lives, we'll have a pattern, not answers, but a pattern 
of not only how to live our lives, but how to encourage others that are in our lives as well. That's my hope for myself, and that's my hope for all of us here at Christ City Church. I really love you. miss you. I wish we were having this Easter morning together, but I'm glad we get to have this. I'm glad we get to have a little bit of order in the midst of chaos. And I'm glad we get to see each other just a little bit longer in the midst of our pain. So, I hope you all have a great Easter morning. If you're a family, there's a kid track right after this uh, with Katie. There's a little video for a craft. Uh, and if you're an adult and you simply just want to do more, I didn't, I didn't write out anything for you today as an adult. Here's the thing I'm going to ask you to do if you want an adult track and take this further. Go make up your bed. Go clean up your kitchen. Go put some things in order. And let the presence of God be near this resurrection day. Go make that Zoom call to the person that you know is in pain and ask them how they're doing and just sit with them. Love you. Have a great Easter Sunday. Bye.